This morning we are continuing on in James chapter 2. Uh, we have finished chapter 1 last week, and so we're moving right along throughout the entire book of James this summer. I have my Retweeting Jesus bracelet on. I hope you do too. I left my shirt at home this morning because it was not ironed, and I was not going to iron it. So I chose to wear a blue shirt instead. So that's close enough. But this morning we're looking at the topic of favoritism. So if you have your Bible with me, if you would, turn to James chapter 2. And what we find in today's passage, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. Actually, this is one of the most structured and logical arguments that you'll find throughout the epistle of James. He's known for being somewhat random in his thinking, sometimes chaotic. He spits some stuff out here, then goes way over here. But what we find in 1 through 13 here is actually one of the most structured and logical arguments that you'll find. And it does concern the topic of favoritism, showing favorites, playing favorites. We're all guilty in one way or another of having favorite things. I couldn't help but think of, anybody seen The Sound of Music in here? Guys, raise your hand. Everybody's seen The Sound of Music, even guys. You know the song, when the dog bites, when the bee stings. Sing it with me. When I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things. And then I don't feel so sad. I can't believe I just did that, but I just felt like we needed to sing it this morning. So that's what I think of when I think of favorite things. The Sound of Music. We've all seen it. It's one of my favorite songs in it. But we all have favorite things in our lives, whether it's you have to think of those things when the dog bites or not. That's irrelevant here. But we have favorite cars. We have favorite songs, favorite foods. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. But when we allow our mindset of favoritism to spill over to the way we treat mankind, it becomes the opposite of what Jesus teaches. And it's the opposite of what James teaches here. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is void of favoritism. Jesus' teaching is void of favoritism. Consequently, we should live our lives treating all mankind equally. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, if you have your Bible with me. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For he who said, excuse me, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, 
you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The thing that hit Holmes most in this passage within James is the fact that he is communicating his message here to a church. In this sense, he's a pastor. And so he's speaking to a congregation much like us. And even more so, he's speaking to a congregation that has new people come into the walls of the church each and every week, much like we do. And the illustration he gives in the beginning part of James chapter 2 is two men enter into the assembly, one dressed appropriately, by church standards, I guess, and the other not. Now, I had an idea earlier in the week that I would show up this morning and be like, I don't know, in like a gym shorts and a t-shirt and have bedhead and preach my entire sermon and then at the end be like, see, we're just like James, but then I realized you would just get distracted and be critiquing what I was wearing. So I decided against that. But each and every week we have people coming into our congregation in the spectrum of dress and all are welcomed. Unfortunately, James, in this passage, has to critique the church because they show favoritism towards the rich over the poor. Notice how early on in this passage, James never describes the man as wealthy or rich. He simply describes what he's wearing. He says he's a man with a fine gold ring and fine clothing. In the Roman world, those that had wealth dressed extremely nice. They wore big fancy rings. They wore fancy jewelry. Clothing was one of the most sure sign indicators of status in the Greco-Roman world. Now, that's not so much the case today, but nevertheless, when people are dressed nicer, we tend to think that they're more important. Let me give you an example of this. And this story is hilarious. I can't believe this guy got away with this. But back in March, there was a, that's March Madness time, college basketball tournaments are happening. Duke was playing the University of Virginia in the ACC tournament. A student that didn't even go to either school shows up at the game, but he's a big University of Virginia fan, so he wears a black suit and an orange tie. Okay, that orange is one of Virginia's colors, okay? He somehow convinces security, the coaches, and the players that he's affiliated with the basketball team. He gets to sit on the bench with the team for the entire game. Now, Virginia upsets Duke that day. He gets to celebrate with the entire team. He shakes hands with Mike Krzyzewski, the most legendary college basketball coach of all time, only because he wore a black suit with an orange tie. He fooled the entire security staff of the arena into thinking that he was affiliated with the university in some way, when in fact he didn't even go to school there. So, two things from that story. One, come September, I'm wearing a dark suit and a black and gold tie, and I'm going to the Superdome to see if I can get on the field. If anybody wants to come with me, we'll have sign-up sheets in the back, and we'll just rotate. We'll try week after week. Eventually, one of us is going to get in. But more importantly, what this shows is that even in 2014, what you wear makes a difference, apparently. Now, we all know that God doesn't see us based on what we wear, what our height is, what our weight is, our gender. Those things don't, don't matter to God. He values us because he loves us. And James is preaching in this text and showing them that no matter what that person wore that walked through the doors of that congregation, God does not show favoritism. You see, the reason favoritism is so dangerous 
is because it contradicts the nature of who God is. If God showed favorites, we would all be in trouble. God loves us all and values us all because we're important to him. And you can sense, as James writes this early on in chapter 2, the frustration that he feels in trying to help this congregation understand you cannot show favorites, rich or poor. As I began to think about this, of course in the context of chapter 2, we understand that he's talking about preferential treatment for the rich over the poor. But you can apply that the other way around. Let's flip it. You can have preferential treatment for the poor over the rich. Now, some people are thinking, wait a minute, Jesus preached a message that was, seemed to be geared towards the oppressed, towards the poor, to those that uh, care for God about. That's true, but he also hung out with tax collectors. It's just that the poor among him seemed to be more drawn to his message. But Jesus loves all, and his message was for all. It just happened to be that the rich oftentimes weren't interested. So I began to think about this week, you know, we do great things in our community through Care Effect, and it's, it's the DNA of our church. We love the poor among us, but let us not forget that the upper middle-class neighbor that lives right next to us is just as in need of the love of Christ as the poor person we meet on the street. Both are important to Jesus Christ. I'm not favoring the rich over the poor or vice versa, but I do know that favoritism, period, contradicts the nature of who God is. The upper middle class person that sits next to you, that works with you, that lives in your neighborhood, matters to God deeply. Economic status does not correlate to spiritual status at all. And James teaches us that this morning. So I want us to wrestle with this illustration all week long as I've been thinking about it. I've been wrestling with this. I believe if we can look at this text and remember these five things, the first one would be wrestle with this illustration. But secondly, we need to understand that in spite of the fact that Clearly, James is talking about the poor over the rich. We also need to remember that blessed are the poor in spirit. We talk so much in this series about Jesus retweeting, excuse me, James retweeting everything that Jesus says. And originally, my intent was to take all five of my points and to somehow take them from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and make those my points in this sermon. But it became, it became very difficult for me to do. But nevertheless, the second thing I want us to understand is Blessed are the poor in spirit, because that's what James is talking about here. If you go back and look at Matthew 5, 3, you also find it in Luke 6, 20. Jesus says these words, Blessed are the poor, for they will receive the kingdom of God. See, in this passage, Jesus completely flips the concept of honor and shame that was found in the Greco-Roman world. It was common for the Greeks and the Romans to value and to place importance on the wealthy and to dismiss the poor. But with Jesus' statements here in Matthew 5, 3 and Luke 6, 20, what he does and flips that and he says, no, 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 blessed are the poor in spirit, not the rich. He flips the honor-shame code that's going on there. When discussing the poor in the context of James right here, we need to understand that there is a huge gap between the wealthy and the poor. Another thing that makes it different than our world is that there is really not a middle class. So you're either wealthy, you're either trying to acquire wealth, or you're poor. Now most of us in this room, we fall middle class, right? That's hard 
for us to grasp somebody being completely rich or completely poor, but in Jesus' day, in James's day, there was no middle class. And so when James is directing this part of his epistle here, there's no middle class. So they're not thinking in terms of, I don't really fall into either one of these categories. Everybody he wrote to fell into one of these categories. There is no middle class. And Jesus constantly speaks on the kingdom of God. That is the crux of Jesus' message. And James understood that. That's why I think in his mind, he's got to be thinking, blessed are the poor in spirit when he's writing this, because he understands the teachings of Jesus. You see, God's choice of poor people, Jesus' choice of poor people to extend his message of hope and salvation shouldn't come as any surprise to us. In Jesus' day, it was the wealthy and the rich that already had their heaven on earth. They had everything they needed right in front of them. And so Jesus' message was appealing to those that didn't have earthly possessions. He promised a future home with riches and blessings that would exceed anything that you could find on this earth. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he understood that many that would come to him were those that had little to take with them once they left earth. James levels three very serious accusations against the rich in this passage. He says they oppress you, they drag you into court, and they blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called. Now they come from a society that was basically based on land. How much land could you acquire? And so when James says they're oppressing you, what he means is these wealthy farmers were gaining more and more land. And once they had all the land they wanted and they wanted more, they kicked the poorer people off their land. That's what he means by oppression. When he says they're dragging you into court because these wealthy people were influential and had money and dressed nice, they were able to gain favorable verdicts in the court system. And so they began suing poorer people for their materials because they knew they had influence. And when it comes to blaspheming the honorable name by which they've been called, the most serious charge that James levels against the rich here, it could have been any number of things. It could have been Gentiles mocking God. It could have been Jews that were making fun of Christians for the claims they made about Jesus. Or it could have been unbelievers in general making fun of Christians for worshiping God, for their practices of morality. One of the big issues in, early on in the first century was that Christians were made fun of about what they believed about the Lord's Supper, what we took this morning. If you think about it, to an outsider, when we say we're taking Jesus' blood and eating Jesus' body, that can be somewhat strange. So they didn't practically understand exactly what Christians were doing when they took of the Lord's Supper. And so when James says they're blaspheming the honorable name by which you've been called, those were some of the things that were happening. But I don't want you to leave this morning thinking that if you have financial security or if you have wealth, that you are not welcomed into the kingdom of God. James isn't saying that. Jesus never said that. In fact, if either one of them did, they would be playing favorites and they would be guilty of the very thing that we're speaking against this morning. But it does heed at a warning to all of us, no matter where we fall in the financial spectrum, that what we have on this earth is not ours. And when we pass, our 401ks, our cars, our houses, our saints' season tickets will not go with us to the next life. What are you doing 
with the financial money that you have in this life? And are you using it to expand the gospel and proclaim the kingdom of Jesus Christ around the world? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. As we move along in the passage, what we find is that James makes it very clear that we are to practice the royal law. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. See, I believe if you're truly practicing the royal law, you will not fall prey to favoritism toward mankind. You can't. Now, most likely, James here is quoting Leviticus 19.18, which says a lot of other things, and then at the end it says, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So that's probably what he's thinking here. But loving your neighbor as yourself, in theory, sounds somewhat easy, but in practicality, it is a monumental task. It is not easy to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm convinced that most of the time that we love ourselves and we like our neighbors, which means we still keep back part of what we're supposed to do for our neighbors, for ourselves. It is difficult to love your neighbor as yourself. I was trying to think about, man, how do we go about actually loving our neighbors as ourselves? I wanted to come up with some grand illustration or some beautiful poetic metaphor, but you know what I came up with? Something even better. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What I came up with was Galatians 2.20. What I came up with was Paul. I firmly believe that the only way we can love our neighbor as ourself is to abide in the Holy Spirit. For he is the one that gives us the ability and the capacity to love others as ourselves. Without the Spirit of God in our lives, it is an impossible task. And I believe James understood that this morning. He says, practice the royal law. I believe he understood that without the Spirit of God in our lives, we would never be able to achieve that. He also makes it very clear this morning that we are to acknowledge our shortcomings. Look at this verse. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. In case you didn't think that favoritism was a sin, verse 9 explicitly states it, finally, as a sin. We don't, we don't know it as a sin until verse 9, according to James, but he makes it very clear there. Favoritism is a sin. And he mentions two sins, murder and adultery. Those are not by accident. Murder and adultery are the two that are mentioned because those seem to be two of the most fundamental sins against other human beings. Is there anything worse than one human being murdering another human being? And secondly, is there anything in our eyes more severe than somebody breaking the covenant between God and man and woman than adultery? Now, of course, we know all sin is equal in God's eyes, but he uses these two sins to show us that these are two of the chief sins that man has classified as being against our neighbor. And that's why he uses those here. You see, the reality is we can't pick and choose what commands we want to obey. I wish we could, because we would focus on the ones that we're really good at and not worry about the others. 
But James wants us to understand this morning that we are accountable for the whole law. And favoritism makes us a transgressor before God. Paul sums this up pretty well, and I'd like to read this this morning. What I found this week as I was preparing is that James retweets Paul a lot, too. Not directly, not as much as Jesus, but there's a lot of Paul in James' thought as well. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you. Romans 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, what we find here in James, when he says, if you've broken one point of the law, you're accountable for all of it, what we're finding is that he understands probably the most important and the first aspect of the gospel that we all have to grasp, and that is that we are inherently sinful people in need of a God who saves us. If you think about when you share your faith with somebody, if you're sharing your testimony, if you're sharing with a lost person, what we try to get them to understand is that they are not perfect, right? That they have sinned. It's important for them to have an accurate understanding of what sin is. And James realized that if he's going to get this congregation to understand that their favoritism was wrong, he's going to have to get them to understand that they, in fact, have sinned. So he gets them to acknowledge their shortcoming by saying, you might have kept most of the law, but if you fall in one point, you're guilty of all of it. Luckily for us, James doesn't end on a somber note. He finishes up, and I steal this from the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. Look what he says in 12 and 13. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. The verbs speak and act are in the present tense. It's not something you've done in the past. You do it now. You speak and act as one who is no, no longer under the law of liberty. We discussed the law of liberty in weeks past. David talked about it last week. We're no longer confined to the Old Testament regulations of the law. We've been liberated from that. Christ has liberated us from our sin, and now he gives us the power to obey him and his will. That's the law of liberty. And James suggests that showing mercy is one particular area that this congregation is not understanding. When James's readers were dishonoring the poor, they were not abiding in the law of, of liberty. They were not extending mercy. I think the best example that I can give of extending mercy comes from Jesus himself. Let's retweet Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing, so let's do it. Matthew chapter 18. We don't have to turn there. I can give you the synopsis. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. There was a king who was in debt, so he goes to his servants who owed him money and says, it's time for you to pay up. One servant comes to him and says, I don't have the money anymore. Can you give me more time? This king had the right to throw this man in jail, but he doesn't. 
He extends mercy to him, and he lets him go. But we all know what happens in this story. That servant that received mercy went and found someone else that owed him money, and he wrung his neck, and he threw him in prison. This got back to the king, and the king was rather upset because he just extended his mercy to the first servant. Why didn't this servant extend mercy to his servant? And here are the words. He says, Should you have not shown mercy to your servant like I showed mercy to you? You see, failure to show mercy to others leads to a stricter judgment. But luckily for us, God's mercy triumphs his judgment. He extends mercy and grace to all of us. Now, every one of us in this room will stand in judgment. But God has extended his mercy and his grace to those that accept him as Jesus Christ. God's judgment is serious, but we are called to extend mercy. You see, the mercy that we display to others is evidence of Christ within us. James's audience was not extending mercy to all. They were extending mercy to who they wanted to, which just happened to be, in this passage, the rich and the powerful. Jesus tells us, blessed are the merciful. In 2, 1 through 13, the saddest part of this entire pericope is that the outer culture, which valued wealth, which valued influence, had infiltrated the walls of the church. No longer was there a separation between the way the church operated and the way the world operated in this passage. Culture pushed down on the church. Remember I said earlier that Jesus flipped the honor-shame code in his culture to where he honored and valued the poor and didn't care quite as much about the rich, mainly because they rejected his message, but he flips the honor-shame code. But in this church that James is writing to, they are no different than the people outside the walls of the church. They allowed the rich and the powerful and the influential to be the ones that they valued inside the walls of the church. There's nothing wrong with a church trying to be relevant, trying to reach people for Christ, but there ought to be a difference in the way that the church operates compared to the world around it. And that's what makes this part of the story so sad, is that James, in his epistle, has to call out the very ones who should know not to participate in favoritism out for what they're doing. God extends his mercy and his grace to all of us. Let us never forget that when we don't extend mercy, when we don't extend grace, God's judgment will be upon us as well. And so this morning, as we think about retweeting Jesus, we want to think about what he teaches us, about favoritism. Nothing wrong with having friends, nothing wrong with having cars that you like more than others. But when you allow your favoritism to spill over into the way that you treat mankind, James makes it very clear this morning that we are transgressors of the law in need of God's forgiveness. I'm thankful that God never showed favoritism towards us, that he loves us for who we are in spite of what we've done. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? God, I pray that we would be remembered as a church who extends grace and mercy 
to everyone who walks through the walls of this church. God, we thank you for not showing favorites towards us. Your word tells us that you are impartial, that you love all, that you value all. And God, if we're guilty of favoritism in our own lives, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of it, help us to repent and turn away from that. Lord, we know that you love us, that you have a plan for each of us, and I pray that we would glorify you through the way that we live our lives. Thank you for James and his word to us this morning. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us during this time of response. Show us where we're falling short. Show us what you would have us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.